And we welcome you into, uh, I guess, what is our season, uh, well, technically season 10 kickoff. It's our fourth season here over at Podbean of Gateway to Baseball Heaven. I'm your host, Daniel Shoptaw, C70. It's about at C70 on Twitter with me, as always, Tara Wellman from Birds on the Black and at Tara Wellman. You know, yeah, Tara, I was thinking about the fact that we've been doing this. Uh, you haven't done it the whole time, but pretty much. You might as well. We'll, we'll, we'll fact we'll give you grandfather clause in there we've been doing this for nine years working on 10 and um it's been a little interesting ride but i don't know if baseball has been any more interesting than it has been right now we're going to get into some of that but just as an overview how crazy is it right now I I can't even catch my breath before the next thing happens that I'm like, well, hold on, everybody. <laughs> we, we need to pause for a second and talk about this, whether it's minor league baseball, which you know is, I was going to say a bit of a soapbox. It's definitely a soapbox for me, or if it is the Astros, or if it is whomever else might be discovered at this point in some sort of cheating or some sort of scandal. And the Cardinals continue to just be kind of boring, which at this point might be a good thing. So it's uh, if it's not one thing, it's the other this offseason, which has been fascinating if you can be sort of a disconnected observer. But I'm not sure how good any of this has been for actual baseball. I guess that's still to be determined. Yeah, definitely something to think about. And yeah, Tara doesn't have a minor league soap box. She has one of those minor league, you know, like a shipping container of, <laughs> of soap boxes that she gets on. And, 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 and a megaphone. And a megaphone, because it, and, it, and for very good reason. Uh, and does a very good job with it. Before we get into the craziness that is though, Major League Baseball, this is a Cardinals podcast, and the Cardinals are on the field. They are playing... Well, they haven't played games yet, but they're, you know, they're taking, they're doing the warmups, they're doing the pitching, they're throwing ball. Adam Wainwright is throwing, pit, throwing, play catch with uh, Chris Carpenter, which is, I don't know if there's anything better than that. Um, and the only thing that's really kind of been a sour note so far is the fact that Miles Michaelis has been shut down for a few days. Um, you get a lot of uh, different opinions about whether this is a bad thing whether this is just a not good thing which i guess is something slightly different um but i given the fact that the cardinals usually have a major injury by now i guess we're okay with this but it's also not real great when you have a guy that you're really counting on already kind of slowed down in spring yeah, I don't think the Cardinals have a ton of margin for error with this team. And that's something that we've said about particularly the rotation the last couple of years. And I feel like I always need to add the caveat. It's not because they don't have other arms that can give you five innings a night. It's because particularly with the way that rotation is constructed right now with Carlos Martinez still a bit of a question mark. Miles Michaelis is one or two, right? Behind mm -hmm. Jack Flaherty, Miles Michaelis is slotted to be that guy. So for him to not be in the mix or to potentially not be in the mix definitely changes the dynamic of that rotation. It immediately taps into that depth that, that we're always talking about with the Cardinals and their pitching staff. But I think coming off of last season that wasn't as spectacularly effective as his first year with the Cardinals, the expectations were pretty high, but also there was sort of this question about whether or not he would return closer to that season one form or be more like the inconsistent version that we saw last season. I think the news about this injury and the fact that it was something that plagued him for much of the 2019 season leads me to believe that's part of the reason he got less and less effective in comparison to the previous season. So to see it lingering, to see it sort of act up again shortly after he began the throwing program this spring not a great sign. And certainly one more thing to add to the list of, of question marks as this team tries to fill in a roster that could go a lot of different ways. Yeah. It's, it's never really great when a injury that is prescribed rest uh, flares up after months of rest, uh, <laughs> as soon as you get back to it again. And as Michael has said, these guys, you know, once you first get going, you're going to hit some of that sort of some of that stuff after you haven't done things for a while. He said he might have done a little bit too much, but it's still a little bit. You're right. It's, it's concerning to see this pop up because, you know, until we see what we have with, with KK, um, there doesn't feel like that. That feels like a, a really big gap that somebody like Austin Comber or Daniel Ponce de Young can 
take the innings, but then won't necessarily give you what you want. And then, you know, like I say, he gives you, puts more of a uh, uh, pressure on this offense. that's already going to be struggling or it feels like mm-hmm. it's already got to yeah. fill up what Marcelo Zuna is, is leaving behind. Um, we've talked about how if there's any step back in the pitching or the defense or even the base running, the offense has to do that much more just to be what they were last year, much less anything better. Um, you hate to see this to happen to them that early on. Now, again, I guess Tara, for you, if he's not back, where's it? What's the line? When do you want to see him pitching and you'll feel pretty good about him going, you know, opening day or real soon after. You know, we've seen this a couple of times with a guy who was one of the veteran pitchers that you feel like maybe doesn't need quite as much time in the spring to really have a feel for his pitches. The challenge is stretching out to that five innings mark, right? Stretching out to that hundred pitches kind of peak. And that just is a process that takes time, especially if you're coming off of something that seems to be aggravated by repetitive use, aggravated by, you know, jumping back in after that time off. I can't imagine that if we're talking about, you know, two weeks plus into spring training games without Miles Michaelis, that he's going to be anywhere near ready for the beginning of the season, just because of the time needed to get to that starting pitcher mark. Now, there's certainly ways that you can ramp that up. You can move things along more quickly. He Maybe he doesn't have to get to 100 pitches for them to feel comfortable about him going four innings at the start of the season. We've seen that before, too, especially with kind of the weirdness of the schedule that first week or so of the season. We kind of saw that with um, Adam Wainwright last year, mm-hmm. in fact, and at times in the past as well. So there are ways around that, but I don't know, man. I feel like the longer you go, especially with – an injury that you maybe don't quite know how it's going to respond to every five days use. It gets a little more and more sketchy every, uh, every time through that rotation, even though in the spring, it's not necessarily every five days. It's, it's a little bit um, more unpredictable than that, but I don't know. What do you think as far as how long it would take someone like Michaelis to be ready as a starter for the regular season? Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of with you on that. I think that I think that if they could feel comfortable with him, as you say, four innings, even opening day, that's great. So you figure he's got to make at least three starts, which in a start is not necessarily a start. You know, he could come in and pitch a couple innings and relief of somebody or whatever. But he needs at least three appearances and probably what at least ten to twelve innings in the minor in the spring before you feel pretty good about him going to the to out there to at least start as a starter, whether he gets that or not. I don't, I don't know. I do remember reading the articles about Mike Maddox continually putting together this pitching plan because there's so many pitchers in camp and they're trying to fight all these innings yeah. and he keeps reworking it, keeps reworking it. And, you know, he probably has it just like he likes it. And then Michaelis goes down, he has to rework it again. So I'd like to see him by, well, I guess what this time next month, That'd be about right, you know, the sixteenth, seventeenth yeah. of March. Yeah. Um, when's the opening day? I, you probably have to have it before then, though, because opening days earlier than that. Opening days on the twenty sixth. So, yeah, you probably want to see him by the twelfth. I would think. Give. I don't know if that's even early enough. So that does. You start. You know, we keep thinking, oh, opening day. It's like six weeks away. Well, that gets on you pretty quickly, especially yeah. when you have to yeah. take four or five days in between when you can pitch. So. I think it's a concern. Um, hopefully it's, you know, can the Cardinals get by without him for even a month? Maybe, but I don't think you'd want to see, I think you want to make sure he's able to pitch by, by beginning of May, if it, nothing else. Um, if that ta- means taking it a little bit slow right now, fine and dandy, but you'd rather him pitch in May and pitch all the way there, the rest of the way, than come back in April and be on the IL in a couple starts later. Yeah, definitely better to take the right approach now than to regret that a couple of weeks into the season when you lose them for even longer. Absolutely. Um, That's really the biggest news. I mean, the Cardinals start playing games on Saturday, which is great. Um, And we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of video, um, you know, because amazingly enough, 
any any uh, media member that has a credential seems to want to get out of St. Louis this time of year and, and go to Florida. Weird. I'm not really <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how that works. Um, you know, I don't know, Terry. You might have the same uh, opinion. I know uh, if someone wants to pay me to go to Florida, I will leave tomorrow. So yeah, just throwing see, that out there. And she could cover the hair beat and the Instagram beat and, and the Lane dog Thomas's beat. dog. Exactly. We'd be best friends three minutes after I got there. So I mean, this is and this is a, a major area that needs to be covered. Honestly, it's I really mean, there's there's not enough dog content on Twitter for spring training. I'm just saying. I call no. it like I see it. And I mean, what do you expect? Jim the cat Hayes to cover the dogs? I don't think so. I think so. there's going to be a cats versus dog thing going on there yeah, that makes exactly. it a little tricky for him to get the inside scoop. Exactly. So somebody pay her, go to Florida. Anyway. <laughs> um, but, you know, we have seen a lot of, in our timelines, a lot of video, a lot of, you know, a lot of comments. Um, and it feels like, I don't know, it's hard to tell. I mean, you're watching little snippets of video on Twitter. Um, so it's not like you're there or really notice it, but um, you know, everybody looks pretty good. I know we've seen some swing changes. It looks like Harrison Bader and Matt Carpenter have, have made some changes that we'll have to wait and see how effective they are. But I think that's a, a good sign that they recognize that they needed to do something different than they did last year. Um, is there anything that stood out to you so far in the little bits of, of media that we've seen? Honestly, no. <laughs> I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot that's, I, I think, distinguishable from any other first week of spring training in that we always see some little tweak to a swing or some little tweak to a, a batting stance. I think that, I mean, you mentioned Chris Carpenter throwing with Adam Wainwright. Yeah. That might be the most significant thing we saw. That doesn't mean that it's uh, important for the actual games we're going to see. But yeah, I mean, it's good to see Harrison Bader actually looking different after talking about the work he put in over the offseason. Same thing with Matt Carpenter. What that means as far as their production and their consistency in their performance, we have no idea yet. Um, I think a lot of people <laughs> were seemingly concerned about Tyler O'Neill in the first couple swings they saw from him. I don't know how much any of that is really necessary or helpful in the first week of spring training, but it is what you get. And you know, you, you just kind of take it for what it is and, and don't try to read into anything too much at this point, I don't think. Yeah, I think mean, that's probably right. Although Brendan Schaefer did notice, note that uh, Carpenter looked like he could still play. So I don't know if you're, Weird. you know, I don't know if you can, you know, be elected to the Cardinal Hall of Fame and then play again. I don't know what the rules are here, but, you know, if he's mm. open for it, I'm willing to see. I mean, if, if I'd be willing to give anyone that chance. It would probably be Chris Carpenter, primarily because I would be very afraid to tell him no. But absolutely, you know. yeah, it's like Bob Gibson. If Bob Gibson wanted to pitch today, you get to the ball and you say, <laughs> yeah. "Here you go, Mister." All Gibson. right, um, thank you, sir. That's right. <laughs> um, that's the way it goes. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much Cardinal camp. And like you said, it's been quiet. It's a, there was an art. This will help us transition. There was a very nice. I don't remember who put the put it up uh, comparison because today. Um, Rob Manfred had to do a press conference and I really do mean had to, because it didn't feel like he really wanted to be there. Um, and uh, John Mosley and Mike Schilt apparently rode with him across over to the other side of the state. Um, and there's a picture of, you know, my, of this media availability and the Houston Astro one has a swarm of people around them. It's not even, I don't think it's even Dusty Baker. I don't know who it was. Uh, and Mike Schilt sitting there right next to it with played on his phone because nobody's talking to him. <laughs> You know, it's the NL manager of the year and nobody's talking to him. And that feels like a lot of what we've seen out of baseball. This is, uh, it's been a crazy couple of days, I think, for the most part. You kind of thought, you know, with the suspensions and all that kind of stuff, maybe a little bit of this would die down. But once players got back into camp, this thing has flared up. The Astros cheating scandal has flared up even hotter, I think, than maybe it was when the suspensions and, and firings came down. I feels like this week it's like, Nothing has been actually resolved. Yeah. First of all, uh, if you hear the squeaking in the background, my dog has decided that this is the appropriate time 
to play with hey, his Louis. most squeaky toy. So that's <laughs> Louis's contribution to this podcast. Uh, but no, I think you're right. It has fired everybody up. And I think in part it's because of, well, two things. The fact that major league players have begun speaking out about the lack of punishments for the Astros players, which has fired everyone up. But then that weird press conference that the Astros put on at the very beginning of their camp that featured a lot of excuses and not particularly contrite, we're sorry we got caught kind of um, answers and responses from from players and um, including the the owner of the team who basically said, um, I don't think this really mattered that much. So yeah, just a lot of really tone deaf comments from the Astros that have been questioned or contradicted um, or rebuffed publicly by players from other teams. And I think that stirred things up far more than we've seen many things in the past, right? Because it's not super often that players will go to town on other players in the spring to the media, like publicly, whether it's on Twitter or in actual interviews that they know are going to be aired on television and all over the internet. So I think that has stirred things up quite a bit more. And the fact that then the commissioner came out twice in the last 24 hours, one with the ESPN interview and second with this press conference today and essentially said, no, I think we actually got this right. And you're allowed to disagree, but I think you're wrong as well as a lot of other absolute nonsense that we can dive into if you want, but it doesn't have players across major league baseball feeling very good about major league baseball, which is not great when you think about some of the negotiations that'll be coming up in the next year or so. But that's the state of baseball right now, which leads to a lot of this really controversial, really hot, really emotional kind of opening sequence out of spring training all over the country. Yeah, I mean, this was going to be a hot button topic no matter. Um, but you do wonder if if ne- relations between labor and management were a lot better than they were. Because we've already, you know, what we've talked about it already. It, you know, the strike looked like it was coming yeah. a year or so ago. Um, that there's been this push and pull against them that's worse than we've seen possibly since 94. So maybe if those relationships were better... I mean, this was still going to be a problem, but maybe it wouldn't have been quite as much of a problem, but it seems to have exasperated to the fat point to that these negotiations for the CBA are going to have a, a bit of a bitter tinge to them even more so, I guess now, because of what has gone on, because it feels like, it seems like players are saying this too. It feels like Manfred has said, okay, this is done. No player is going to be punished because we can't because we gave them immunity but you can't punish them in the you know time-honored baseball tradition of putting one in their ribs um so you're not allowed to do that which okay fine but also you're not really allowed to speak out about it you know we i don't think this discourse is healthy or whatever he says um and it really feels like it it's like everything is going the Astros way and that's not going to make anybody feel good. Um, and, but especially those players that feel like they're, you know, their livelihood has been cheated a bit here at the, you know, how well Houston did. I mean, they're, you know, what we saw the lawsuit this week um, from the pitcher that his last outing was against the, the Astros in a one that they banged the trash can, I think the most in, I think it's the game they used at the most. Um, yeah. There's a lot of that. And a lot of people are not, real happy with the Astros and they're not got a, there's not a way for them to express that anger in a form that management will approve. And that's got to, that's got to rankle them a bit. Yeah. It's such a weird circumstance. And to some degree, I do feel a little bit for the commissioner's office trying to come up with a solution to this that is, acceptable in any fashion, right? Because someone's not going to be pleased. There's going to be repercussions. There will be ripple effects of whatever decision that they make. I think the challenge comes when you make a decision based on this idea that without offering immunity to every player that spoke, you would never have been able to come to this conclusion, right? Complete Mm -hmm. the investigation. 
And while I think there's probably some truth to the fact that without some cooperation, like in any investigation, without some cooperation from witnesses and actual collection of evidence, you can't ever come to any sort of certain conclusion about what the truth is. But to just sort of across the board say nothing is going to happen to the players because we decided a long time ago that the the real weight of this falls on the shoulders of management I just don't think that's going to sit right with a lot of players who are quite possibly sitting at home watching all of this thinking, okay, but I also have a manager and a, and a GM and an owner. And I know that that was a bad thing. Like I would have known not to do that without someone telling me not to do that. And that's where it feels like, in, in some respects, a lot of guys who have been outspoken uh, about steroids, right, have said, look, I went out of my way to play the game the right way and to be clean and to earn my way through this game by working harder and being better at what I do, not by giving myself an unfair advantage over everyone else. There are guys who are thinking, look... <laughs> I've had to face off against some of those same pitchers that you teed off on. And I never had that chance because you knew what was coming. So I earned every hit I got against those guys. You didn't. And because you told the story to the investigators, you suddenly, you know, you, you get away without having any repercussions of that. And then after all of that, I know this is a long-winded answer, but then after all of that, for the commissioner to say, well, I think that the pushback they're getting this spring is really punishment enough, <laughs> that also is not going to sit well with players who, to your point, maybe ended their careers because of the the stat line that was a result of the Astros cheating, facing off against them. That That's not going to be okay. That's not going to be enough even if the Astros have to face these questions for the rest of their lives, as as far as the players are concerned, it's not the same as their actual career ending. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree with that for sure. I, I do wonder how things would have been different if, if the commissioner's office doesn't give full blanket immunity to the players, but still, and then winds up suspending some of the players or whatever, what does the players union do then? Do they yeah. fight yeah. the players that are, you know, getting suspended because there's, you know, there's absolutely no uh, precedent for this. And this is maybe against the CBA or whatever, or are they with the other players that we're seeing that are like, no, that's, that's right. They should be. I don't know. That was interesting. It, Cause it feels like the commissioner's office was afraid that they did not want to mess with the players union. And so that's why they did it this way because they could, they could, they could deal with front offices. They could do whatever. But once you get into suspending players, then it becomes a lot lot harder to deal with and you get into some messy stuff and they just decided they didn't want to mess with it. Um, and that's causing all the problems that we're seeing now. Um, I think... I think there's also... I think there's also sort of an unspoken element of there are other teams doing stuff. And mm -hmm. if we start suspending players for doing stuff, then those players are going to start talking about teams that they think are doing stuff. And then major league baseball is going to be in this perpetual investigation mode, trying to figure out what teams are doing, what things that are technically over the line. That's not always super clear to the players. And then how do you set a sort of precedent for what's suspendable and what isn't like, it gets really murky mm -hmm. and it gets really layered and complicated. And I get that. And I think that in that respect, I can understand why they had to sort of just make up their mind and then defend it at all costs, right? To say, this is what we decided. This is why we decided it. Mm -hmm. It is what it is like it or not. It is what it is because I think at some point, it's sort of that, you know, theoretical, if you kick a rock downhill, how do you stop it at some point, right? Yeah. Especially with ongoing investigations, especially with even alluding to today in the press conference, which I thought was very intriguing, that there could be other open investigations that haven't become public yet. I mean, this is all going to get messier before it ever gets cleaned up. And I think that 
probably has something to do with the precedent they wanted to set. Manfred mentioned multiple times he's a big precedent guy, which is kind of a lame thing to say about yourself. But nonetheless, I think there's something to trying to establish a precedent that they know they can repeat if and when they find fault in other teams. And once you start suspending players on an individual basis, it gets way more complicated. And you're right. Then you have to deal with the players association and, and, Manfred even said they knew that if they started doing that, there would be grievances that they would probably lose because of this, that, or the other. So they went for the cleanest option that maybe isn't the most satisfying, but it's one that they can repeat if necessary. Yeah. Although for a guy that's big on, you know, precedent, which would be history to call the commissioner's trophy a hunk of metal is a, Ooh, a bit yeah. of an interesting, interesting choice. He's a he's um, a precedent guy, but not a baseball guy. I think we've clarified that. Yeah, I mean, you know, Manfred, it's interesting. I was just, I, I have a copy of Bud Selig's um, autobiography or whatever his time as a commissioner. And it's, you know, Manfred, uh, the part that I was reading, it was actually when Manfred came in and he's, you know, he's a he's a lawyer. He's a he was a lawyer for the management side on the strike and and things of that nature. And it, it feels like it's been a while since baseball's had a commissioner that didn't have a real tie to the game. You know, obviously for all of Bud Selig's faults, and there were a lot of faults for Bud Selig. Um, he was a baseball fan. I mean, he'd been a baseball fan for his entire year, his life. He had you know made this push to have baseball in Milwaukee. You, know, you go back to, you know, Faye Vincent. I don't know how much of a baseball fan he was, although he was some. He also had a very good respect for Bart Giamatti, who came before him. And I think he tried to carry on that legacy. And obviously, Bart Giamatti had a, a strong uh, tie and romantic view of baseball, if you will. So you get back into Peter Uberoth, who was strictly business. And that's where the collusion era came from. So not necessarily a person you want to, you know, emulate there. Um, so. I think we're seeing that. You're right. This Manfred is baseball's paying him well. And he's just as happy to use his lawyer skills in baseball as he is anywhere else. But it doesn't seem that he has any real attachment to this because we have seen time and time again, that there's not a decision that he's made that, or perhaps made um, that I don't know that there's one that, that baseball fans have agreed with yet. It doesn't feel like so. This is a mess. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, 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 I'm with you. There is that idea of of not being able to suspend the whole league. I will say, if if cheating is as widespread as as it would have to be for all these suspensions to be a problem, there are going to be a lot of people if it ever comes out. Or there's a lot of brazen ball players. Let's put it that way, because I think there's somebody on just about every team that has spoken out very vocally against this whole thing and so if it comes back you know we saw chris bryant this weekend just for an example talking about this you know if it came out that the cubs were cheating in 2016 um that's a trophy that i wouldn't mind them stealing but anyway that's another story (laughs) um you know if it comes out that something like that i mean it's like rafael palmero wagging his wagging his finger at congress i mean these things happen but they really blow back bad so i feel like i feel like if that cheating was so prevalent you wouldn't have these players sniping quite as much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think that's the interesting part of this, right? Especially for fan bases who have jumped in so boisterously about this whole thing, because Alex and I talked about this way back when, when this was just sort of like a, Oh, this is happening. We'll see Mm. how it plays out. You kind of want to be a little careful, right? How much you say, how much you, you know, how vehemently you, uh, um, destroy someone else for something because sure enough, your team will be the next one that's caught doing something they shouldn't do. I do think it's interesting. I go back to comments that were made um, early. Well, I guess in the winter at some point from Mike Schilt, even talking about how they had conversations as a staff about how far they could go or what they would be willing to do, or they knew that other teams were doing stuff. Should we also be doing stuff to gain the same advantage? And they essentially decided according to that conversation, no, there's a line we're not going to cross, but that has to be a conversation that has happened in managers offices all over baseball. And I don't know how confident you feel, but I don't feel super confident that every team's going to come down on the right side of that as far as choosing to not 
cross that line. Mm-hmm. Especially seeing Houston and still whatever will happen with the Boston investigation. I mean, there are teams that have been willing to do things that are a little shady. And this is another one of those times where I I think that it wouldn't shock me if other teams ended up involved in this mess somehow as well. But I do think you're right. I I think with so many players speaking out so strongly and like naming names, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not just saying in general, this is a bad thing. People shouldn't do it, but calling people out specifically and bringing up specific examples it's it would be it would be real dumb of them to do that if they had teammates that were doing the same thing or something similar. So I would like to think it's not as widespread as Houston is trying to make everyone believe, but I also wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. And it, it to be fair, I guess to the commissioner's office which you know, they may not have realized, they may have been afraid that it was so widespread that they wanted to get the players in and give them immunity all that stuff. And then it's kind of backfired on them because it's not as widespread. Maybe. We'll have Hopefully. to see. Hopefully that's the case. Because, um, yeah, I don't really want to spend all summer long finding out that this team cheated and that team cheated and all that stuff. Um, I do find it funny. Everybody's saying, well, they're only apologizing because they got caught. Well, yeah, this is true. I'm going to, because the only person I can think of that's apologized for something without being caught was like Mark McGuire. Um, because he never failed a steroid test, but he did eventually apologize that for everything else that happened. I mean, that's just, you know, if they hadn't been caught, they might still be cheating, although maybe not. 2019, it just depends on who you ask, I guess. Um, the other side of this, and it's to bring it back a little bit to the Cardinals, is, you know, this does kind of put the spotlight on Jeff Albert. And I know a lot of fans have worried, complained, been concerned about Jeff Albert's role in this process. Now, of course, 2017, he wasn't there. Um, he was in the minor leagues. Uh, 2018, they had kind of gotten away from the banging of the trash can, as we know, and whatever they were doing, he says he didn't see it. He also says, which I think is very indictment of the culture, as we've talked about, that he, even if he knew about it, he didn't know who he would talk to it about. Um, so that's interesting. Some people are saying he should have known. Some people are saying, you know, how can we trust that he wasn't involved? Where do you come down on Jeff Albert on here? I think for the most part, it seems like the scheming and the constructing of schemes would have had nothing to do with Jeff Albert as mm-hmm. far as Houston is concerned, right? Because in 2017, everything that led up to this plan and the execution of the plan that included banging of trash cans which can we just acknowledge still sounds so stupid. And we're all talking about it like it's a super normal thing. But yeah. anyway, that wasn't something Jeff Albert was a part of. That wasn't part of what he did that led a team like the Cardinals to believe he was a great option for revitalizing or revamping a hitting technique, a hitting program, right? It was what he did prior to that, as well as, you know, what event, what eventually happened with his involvement in 2018. Now, in 2018, depending on what you believe and how many details we actually have, the particular scheme that was so well used in 2017 transitioned to something a bit more sci-fi <laughs> i don't know what you want to call the code breaker or what, what were they calling it uh yeah, dark right. magic or whatever it was oh, yeah. dark arts yeah that's what it was the dark arts um Play again right seemed like it was a bit more um technology a bit less on the field I, I don't know how we break all of that down because we don't have all those details so similarly i don't know how much jeff albert would have been directly involved with creating that or with implementing it however it was in fact implemented on the field now that's not to say he didn't know right Mm. if you're an assistant hitting coach and you've got guys talking about how they are stealing signs or you see stuff in the game like i would hope you're a little more observant (laughs) as an assistant hitting coach than to not realize that your hitters were aware of what pitch was coming sometimes i would hope that you're more observant than that but I guess I just don't know quite how to feel about him sort of coming into a 
a thing that was already in existence that he didn't really have anything to do with and was sort of the low man on the totem pole as far as trying to stop it. Now, that doesn't mean he shouldn't have if he knew something was going on that shouldn't be going on. And I don't know where you kind of pass judgment on how much of that falls on his shoulders. But as it pertains to St. Louis, I don't really see it as a whole lot of a factor because I don't see where he fits into it enough to be like, oh, that's what they thought was so successful about his system. It was the system. Mm -hmm. And somehow thinking that that would translate or carry over to St. Louis. So I don't know if that's a good answer. I think there are too many pieces of that story as far as his involvement that we don't have, but he also hasn't been any of the names that continue to pop up as far as people being involved in this from the Houston um, side of, of the story. So I'm not super worried about it. I think the other thing is if that's what they thought made him so successful, or if that's, let me back up. If that's what made him successful enough of a hitting instructor that the Cardinals thought they should bring him in, then when they brought him in and he was like, I don't really have anything except we should bang trash cans, they wouldn't have continued to express such strong support in him and his methods and his, uh, what's Mill call it, the curriculum that he brought to the table. So I, I just have to believe there's more to what he's brought to the table than some sort of uh, dark arts scheming, or they wouldn't continue to be so supportive and, and so insistent on him implementing what he did so well in the minor leagues with the Astros. Yeah. I mean, like somebody pointed out a long time ago, it's not like the Cardinals, you know, sorted the league by OPS or war or whatever and said, okay, that's the guy we got to go get because, you know, they're looking at procedures. They're looking at how things are working and, and like you said, if, if Jeff Albert comes in and says, yeah, I, I do this, but we also have this little system, then, you know, that would have been a, a bit of a red flag. And I don't think he would have a job there. Um, now, obviously, if the Cardinals had hit much better last year, nobody's concerned about this as much with Jeff Albert. I think that the idea that his curriculum didn't carry over to St. Louis makes people wonder about that kind of stuff. But it does feel like it's a little bit overblown. And, you know, the commissioner, what he said, the commissioner had like a 30 minute conversation with him. Granted, we could argue how thorough the conversation, the commissioner's investigation was, but it feels like, you know, one conversation with Jeff Albert and he's never popped up with all the players talking about him. Um, it does feel like that, you know, maybe he knew a little bit more or maybe he suspected a little bit more than he thought. I do wonder how much the players may have, especially by 2018, kept things a little bit quieter from player from people that weren't in the organization the year before. You know what I'm saying? Um, may not Especially have been if this. they knew that opponents were starting to figure it out. Right. And your assistant hitting coach may be a good chance of him going somewhere else at some point in time. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, you do wonder if there was some idea of keeping, or at least, you know, speaking in code. Um, so it's it's a different thing to, to figure out. Um, the other part of the conversation today, of course, and here's where we get into... Um, Terrace shipping container <clears throat> um, is this the minor league contraction? My here. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I actually need to go uh, go somewhere for the next fifteen minutes. So that's why I'm, I got I'm bringing this, guys. This up. Yeah. Um, so again, Major League Baseball, Major League Baseball continue to, to butt heads over some things, and of course, in this press conference that uh, Manfred didn't want to have, he's asked about the minor league thing. Uh, Tara, why don't I'll just I'll just open the floor up here and you can tell you know what he said and why it was stupid. Uh, well, he reiterated what he said in the interview that was posted earlier. He reiterated what has been said by spokespersons from Major League Baseball in the last couple of months, and really, he's reiterating a point that has been contradicted by what minor league baseball has said and. I mean, look, I can't I can't verify the accuracy of their statements, but I've been told on a personal level by people directly with minor league teams that what he's saying is frankly entirely inaccurate. So primarily what he has said is that minor league baseball 
is not willing to negotiate, that they have bad owners in minor league baseball who have been unwilling to update their facilities. He's said that their primary concern is that when they send players to these minor league affiliates, that the facilities meet the standards of their developmental goals and that some of these places are simply unsafe for players to be operating in. And the reality is none of that holds up. (laughs) I mean, to be quite frank, a lot of the teams on that list, the, the proposed contraction list of 42 teams, right? There are places on that list that I can tell you need updating. And there are teams that I have spoken to that have said, look, yes, there are improvements that can be made. We would love to improve the travel conditions, right? Not have to travel as far as we do based on the alignments of the leagues, that sort of thing. But there are also teams like the State College Spikes, who Cardinals affiliate, who uh, have some of the best facilities in the entire minor leagues and they share their facilities with a collegiate program as many of these teams do. So to make this blanket statement that it's about the safety and the development of your athletes and of your employees and these facilities just aren't up to snuff isn't actually accurate. Now, that's not to say it isn't accurate about all of the teams on the list, but it is categorically untrue about many of those teams on the list a number of which are those short season affiliates, right? And here's where it gets a little sketchy. I've been having this conversation most of the night in my Twitter (laughs) mentions because the Appalachian League teams, there are 10 of them. Those teams are owned by their parent teams. And those teams are on this contraction list. So tell me if this is about inadequate facilities based on ownership, not making proper decisions about upgrading facilities, who are we pointing the finger at for these Appy League teams that are owned by their parent club, Mm -hmm. right? So that's the kind of contradiction that we're seeing time and time again from Major League Baseball is they try to reprimand Minor League Baseball for seeking out public outcry to garner support for their cause, which is a thing that these guys keep talking about like it's a bad thing. And I think it's just because they don't know how to generate good PR. So they're jealous of it. But that's the kind of thing that this continues to reiterate. I could go on and on about this and the ways that what the commissioner said today, what they continue to say doesn't hold up when I have been asking these same direct questions to ownership and to general managers and to presidents of minor league teams who are on this contraction list and what they have been told versus what they haven't been told. And that's why I think it's frustrating that this opportunity to present some sort of positive move in all of this was met once again with inaccuracies and an attempt to label minor league baseball as the bad guy. In, in one other respect that I, I want to, I forgot to mention earlier, so I'll say this and then I'll let you talk. <laughs> um, he continues to say that minor league baseball has, quote, mischaracterized what the plan is because major league baseball has promised in this proposal to maintain some sort of baseball in these communities that already have baseball. The problem is, whether it's the Dream League or the idea that it would be some sort of collegiate program or some sort of independent, whatever it is, these minor league teams have not ignored that. They have not mischaracterized that in any conversation I've had with them, nor in their public statements. What they have said is the the method of which Major League Baseball has said they would keep baseball in these towns is not feasible. The Dream League will not work (laughs) based on the plans they have seen from Major League Baseball. So they're not ignoring the fact that Major League Baseball has said, sure, we'll keep baseball in these towns. They're simply countering that by saying, okay, yeah, but that won't work. And that's not a mischaracterization. It's simply a rebuttal. Well, and and as you, I'm pretty sure, I know you've retweeted it. I can't remember if you retweeted it or you put it out as your own point either way um 
the the fact is that baseball wants to have this dream league in the same facilities that are apparently you know dangerous right. to health and safety. So yeah, that was me. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I knew you. Had, I knew you had it out there somewhere. I knew I saw it from your feet. I'd put it that way. Um, and so that's that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, you know, what are they? You know, I know that they're not going to be providing the players, but it's like, oh well, if we're not providing the players, we don't care if they die. <laughs> you know, and that's right. a, a little extreme, but but pretty much when you start to to take it to that to take it to that extreme, it's what they have in their public comments, and that's what you're going to get. Um, you know, we talk about the other side of this the coin that came out this week was that they're going to raise minor league salaries in 2021, which as somebody, I think Craig Edwards pointed out was almost the same uh, amount of money that it would cost. They would save by um, eliminating teams. So there's that convenient. Um, Yeah. Convenient. Also the fact that somebody pointed out that it was basically, let's see what it was at eight in 1997, maybe um, minor leaguers got $800 and with inflation, they would be at sixteen hundred a day, and that's what the raise is going to be. It's to sixteen hundred, yeah. so basically they're not any better off than they were twenty years ago. They just finally um, compensated for inflation. Yeah, and, and and not, and and they've been behind on that. That's what we're saying too. So, um, is this an idea of trying to buy a little bit of goodwill at the cheap? Um, because it doesn't feel like it felt like it did a little bit, but then I think people started looking at it and realized this still didn't do anything. I think what a triple a AAA player for six months was still only going to make $16,000. And that's, you know, when you've got all the fees that you've pointed out so many times this year of, you know, clubhouse dues and buying equipment and all this other stuff, $16,000 didn't go very far. Yeah. And that's not, if you're a first year AAA player, right? Exactly. Like that's the max. If you've been there, I think it's three plus seasons. You're right. When I first saw this and, and saw some of the numbers, I thought, wow, okay. This isn't great, but it's at least moving in the right direction, right? It's movement, it's it's progress, it's something. It's Major League Baseball saying, oh, right, we pay those guys, so we can do something about the salaries that they make. But then you start looking at all the details and some of the breakdown of this. And again, for me, it was seeing that date that it's not something they're implementing this year, which why not? It's, I mean, there's, there's literally no reason that they could not have implemented this this year, except that this is the last year of that player development agreement. The 2021 season is when they're hoping to have 25% less teams to worry about. And then all of a sudden you start to realize, oh, this still isn't about the benefit of the player. It's about not changing the bottom line for major league owners when, this pay increase kicks in. And it's not even a pay increase that is going to dramatically change the lives of these players. They're still going to be basically playing for poverty level salaries, especially when you factor in that, you know, they're committing to what six months out of the year and getting paid for three as far as like organized baseball activities where they're required to be on a field somewhere every day. And then there's the fact that they have off-season programs they have to keep up with. They have personal coaches and instruction and and work that they put in in the off-season so that they increase their odds come spring training to actually make a roster and get paid at that point, even as, as little as it is. So it doesn't really change the lives of these players. It just kind of like maybe allows them to buy some sort of non peanut butter and jelly sandwich every now and then, which <laughs> is great for them. I'm, I'm happy for those guys, but it still doesn't cut into the bottom line of owners, assuming they get their way and contract 25% of these teams or at least the short season teams. Right. I think that those are the numbers that you were referring to that. It's essentially the same total that if you eliminate yeah. all those short season teams, they would be paying in the, in the increase in 2021. And that doesn't make me feel great about Major League Baseball's motivation for increasing the pay that they could have done two years ago if they really wanted to, and they chose not to. And I, I would say this. I was thinking about this today. Sometimes I have a hard time explaining to people or or getting people to understand why this is a problem, right? Because lots of people don't make enough money. Mm-hmm. I think I think what's important and kind of where I land on all of this is that it's not the struggle that's the injustice, right? Struggle and challenge and not having enough money, that in and of itself is not where it becomes 
an injustice where it, there's this this idea of inequity and injustice is that the system has a way to solve this problem and they've chosen not to. That's where it becomes a problem for me and where it becomes a line that is different than just, oh, well, they have a part-time job. They're not really making that much money. It's that this struggle could go away tomorrow and the system just has chosen to ignore it. And that's where it becomes a problem to me. That's why when you look at this through a lens of maybe not seeing Major League Baseball as always the good guy here, you see that they still have worked this into maybe a good moment of PR that still doesn't affect their bottom line and still doesn't really solve the problem. It just softens it a little bit. Yeah. Well, and it's still, you know, developing you know, cheap labor so you can make millions of dollars right. off of it. I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to. And, and again, that's probably not necessarily a uh, something completely tied to baseball. I think we see that in other parts of society. But um, like you said, there's a situation here where it's, it's very direct and it's very obvious and it's very much that you can pay people a little bit more than they, <clears throat> than, than, than this. I mean, that you can pay them. I'm not, again, nobody's saying that, that, a guy in single A should be, you know, set for life or anything like that. That's not, but you know, he should be able to, you know, not have to live with six people in a two bedroom house, you know, for the season. I think that's what they're getting at. So, um, it'll be interesting to see. This is going to be something that drags on as well, along with the, uh, the, the cheating and everything of that nature. Um, so yay baseball. Um, I think uh, <laughs> things are going well. <laughs> yeah. And, and we haven't even got to the, the, the games on the field yet. So hopefully once that happens, we'll have a lot more interesting and fun things to talk about um, that don't require, you know, legal degrees or um, moral and ethical judgments. Um, we'll just be able to talk about whether Harrison Bader can now hit uh, a breaking pitch or anything of that nature. So I cannot wait to for that. that to be the conversation we have. Yes. <laughs> look forward to that. Maybe next week. Cardinals play the Mets uh, Saturday and Sunday. So by the time we record next time, we'll have two games under our belt. And maybe we can see, a, we can tell absolutely nothing out of the fact that everybody's had like one at bat, but. Um, Won't know, stop us it? from drawing any conclusions. Not at all. Not at all. So until next week, that is Tara. I'm Daniel. Good night. Hey, Cardinals fans. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you liked what you heard, you can find us on iTunes. Just search Gateway to Baseball Heaven under Podcasts and click Subscribe. While you're there, feel free to give us five of those little gold stars or even a quick review. And tune in next time as we break down another week in Baseball Heaven.